Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. It's two weeks ago. It's a week after we've done self and... The buzz has not stopped. We have continued to talk about how self went and what we want to accomplish next year. And in doing so, I thought I would invite JT Pennington, the producer of the Ask Noah Show, and staff at Southeast Linux Fest, as well as Jeremy Sands, the director of Southeast Linux Fest, to come on and talk about their thoughts on how self went and what it's going to look like going forward. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Good evening. Happy to be here. So, Jeremy, I want to start with you and ask you this. What, how, how did Self go this year as compared to years in the past? What do you expect out of Self each year? What is it that you try to accomplish? And did you meet that goal this year? Um, well, uh, it was, for me at least, far easier than normal uh, since you shouldered an awful lot of the burden this year. Uh, I told you first and foremost to keep it modest and don't kill yourself. I don't know how well you adhere to my guidelines, but if you've deviated from them, at least that was your own free choice. Um, in terms of what I try to accomplish with self, um, it's it's kind of a 50-50 mix of education out of the grassroots and social gathering so that people who work on the same project all year from hundreds of thousands of miles away can sit down in meat space with, you know, beer and pizza and things that other people in IRL get to have all the time, but most of us being spread out don't. Um, we did the best we could given the the pandemic circumstances, um, and I think we did all right, all things considered, given that it's, you know, a completely new playbook. We very much literally threw the playbook out for most years uh, to pull this one off. JT, I want to ask you, you know, Obviously, one of the things that one of the reasons that you and I first started attending self to begin with was to engage with the community and build the community and get to know these get to know the people that are around. And Southeast Linux Fest does that in a way that no other Linux Fest does. And a big part of that, I think, is being able to just hang out and relax and do things that are fun because they're fun, not because they have a, a massive purpose behind them or there's some corporate interest behind them and you were kind of the, the the center point of that this year with your hackathon that happened on friday night talk about what that was how it went and and how you think it relates to the community yeah well it was fun um <clears throat> i am a little disappointed that jeff wasn't able to get an old red hat installed but we uh we finally chalked it up to a floppy issue of using a usb floppy device um but it was nice being able to interact with people and hear people's stories as we, you know, plucked something off the shelf that was really old and being able to hear people say, hey, I remember using that or, you know, I thought about installing that, but I never did. And I went with this old version. It was really nice being able to just have some old talk and get to know other people's paths of, you know, what versions they used in the past or what they thought about old versions. 
because so much of what we do is always, you know, the latest technology is the newest thing is how have you heard of this project? And we don't often sit down and actually play with the old stuff. We'll reminisce, you know, over coffee or, or, or over pizza, as Jeremy said, you know, about the good old times and stuff like that. But actually getting hands on the old equipment and actually getting hands on those installs is something that we don't do very often. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do that. And I think it was very well received and people enjoyed being able to kind of relive the old times, not just in actually just talking about it, but in seeing it. Uh, back to Jeremy, I guess. What what did why couldn't we have taken a year off? You know, I, I guess when I first heard that that self was going to be canceled, I immediately kind of jumped up to say I w we should do something remote. And I think to a certain degree, if you unless you live under a rock, there are plenty of reasons in 2020 to look around and decide that there's something to be upset about. There's something to be disappointed in humanity about. There's something to be disappointed in society about. And when it came to Southeast Linux Fest, we didn't do that. We didn't give people one more reason to say, oh, I'm disappointed. Why did, why does self have, why does, why do you put so much effort into self every other year? And why was that important to keep doing that this year? Uh, sure. So um, definitely important to, uh, to keep the community together, uh, together and, and, and moving forward. Um, for those who have never attended SELF, um, possibly the most valuable part of the conference. Well, let me phrase this a little bit better. People who come to the SELF, uh, who come to the Southeast Linux Fest as one of their first events or their first time at the event, focus on the talks. The people who've been to SELF lots of times or been to lots of conference focus on the hallway track, as we call it, which is the ad hoc networking of like-minded people in the hallway that just kind of ebbs and flows and bubbles up naturally. Um, uh, we, we tried our best. We, we had our we had our virtual hallway track, and you were able to uh, rather well pipe in people from the crowd uh, on the near real-time audio feed to ask questions and stuff. But, yeah, definitely uh, important to keep something going forward. Um, I liked that we were able to keep the event presented as normal. I think it was a, a nice respite and a nice bit of uh, normalcy uh, in a really kind of upside-down world at the moment. The community is, uh, it, it, you know, I, I guess to a certain extent, I have always kind of looked at self as the family I wish I had had the technical family I wish I had had growing up because when I got into Linux and when I was starting to play with these things and I discovered something really cool, but it didn't quite work right or I discovered something really cool and I wanted to show somebody or I wanted to talk to somebody about it. There weren't people around and you know, over time the IRC kind of filled that niche for me and, and, and now there's obviously a whole bunch of different ways to connect with community. But, uh, when, when I look at what Southeast Linux Fest is every single year, and as you say, the community track that springs up around it, to me, that is the technical family that we all wish we had. And a lot of us, I think, we are masters of our own domain. So we go into work and we're the guy or we're the girl that somebody comes to and says, hey, you're the guy with all the Star Trek posters and all the computer nerds and you run the weird operating system. You probably can fix this problem, right? And that's, we all have that individual experience and being able to come to Southeast Linux Fest allows us to talk with 
other people in that domain and start to build that community. And so I, I guess my plea for people, if you weren't able to, jo- whether you joined us this year or not, as we come up with Self 2021, I would ask that you really give a, you really give strong consideration to setting aside the time to to join in person. Because it uh, it does allow for that networking. It does allow you to poke your head up and meet some friends and 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 build community with with other people that that share a passion for Linux, not just on the servers, but Linux everywhere. Embedded Linux, ARM Linux, Linux on the desktop, Linux on the server, administration. Obviously, there's an entire track devoted to databases and 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 SQL and so on and so forth. And so, if any of those things are of interest to you, we invite you to, to join us and 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 check that out. I want to talk a little bit about the technical uh, side of self because this is where I think this year anyway, it it played a big role and what that might look like in future years. So we started down the track of we want to use end-to-end fully open source software. And what we arrived at was that the open source software that 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 we had was not going to quite cut it. It worked 80% 80% of the time, we needed it to work 99% of the time. And so what we were afraid of is, a, particularly in a, at a year where the only event is the remote event, we just couldn't take a gamble on the remote side. And so we went with Zoom. How did you, I, I guess I'll go back to JT. How did you think the remote side of it worked, having people come in, staging those, those speakers, having them present and go out? And do you, think, do you think there's room for improvement in the future? And if so... Uh, do you think we go back to Zoom or do you think we look at Matrix or Big Blue Button or, or some of the other conferencing software that's out there? I would like us to work towards having a fully open source stack. I know when we when we first started talking about this, that was something that we all wanted to do and we all wanted to focus on. Um, <clears throat> we kind of had to go with that split stack this year. As far as how it went, I did not have a single person run to me panicking Uh, saying, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a problem, this is an issue, we can't link this in with this, or, you know, this person can't connect. So as far as what I experienced, everything worked well. Um, But I still would like us to pursue going for a full open source stack so that we can then use that and promote that to others who want to follow that formula. Jeremy, I'll throw this back to you. The jobs uh, that come out of self are amazing, and this is one of the reasons we push so heavily on the networking side, because the networking side directly relates to people getting employed. And we know that that's something self is really good at when people need a job or when they need to connect with a potential employer. Southeast Linux Fest is a place that they can do that. Um, why is that, do you think? And and how has that manifested itself in the past? Yeah, so, uh, well, before I get too far range, before we, we get afar from it, uh, I just wanted to say I was a little sad that JT did not mention Lin Spire in his roundup of the uh, the old hardware rag chew, given that it was the first distro that worked for him, and I don't think anyone on planet Earth would have said go to Lin Spire for it to work first. Um, also, regarding Zoom, um, you, know, you could, Zoom was functional, but far from ideal. Uh, on my end, I had to run OBS with a um, V4L loopback device. Uh, it's an actual kernel module where you direct video into a V4L dev device, and it just loops it back in output from that device as well. So Zoom didn't work with my webcam, but for whatever reason, if I then launched OBS and ran my webcam through a loopback, Zoom was fine with it. 
go yeah that's that's voodoo go figure that one um in terms of hiring um definitely i think it's because self is it's it's people who would be in this space even if it didn't relate to their job and my, there's quite a few in the who come to self uh who are interested even though it's unrelated to their professional field um i can't say who because it was it was told to me in confidence in terms of who it came from because they don't divulge the, that kind of info as a matter of policy but one of the people who was at self there to recruit people said that they had more qualified applicants and more final hired applicants than they got at scale which blows my mind scales the southern california lindus expo i tell sponsors myself if you want to get a feel for self go to scale first it's probably five to ten times bigger than self and it's in los angeles it's not free you know it's missing some of the things that we do well particularly on the social side but it it has that same flavor um, and for us to somehow manage more qualified applicants and more hired applicants than a talent pool in Los Angeles, five to 10 times bigger than ours is kind of mind boggling to me. If I can jump in on that, I think actually it's the social side of self that may have an, an effect on that because the people who are looking to hire people, they not only get to say, okay, this person is technically capable and they're experienced, but they actually get that human connection. And I think that's a big thing that matters is, yeah, I know this person will fit in with my team at my company. And I think that can have an effect. That's fantastic. So I guess in wrapping or in closing, I'll go back to Jeremy. Jeremy, what would be the what would be the call for next year? I think uh, I, I was really happy with the way that self turned out, as you mentioned. I I really took a lot of uh, of peace and I, I got a lot of refreshment out of um, the Matrix Room, and of course, that's still up and running. In fact, we have those guys with us tonight, matrix.linuxdelta.com. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the ability to hang out and just talk tech till 2, 3 in the morning, and I've enjoyed the opportunity to continue to maintain those relationships and continue to build new relationships um, over this over these open-source decentralized platforms. Uh, you know, do we do we look to bring that back next year? I think we probably do. Um, can we do it a little bit better? Can we do it with more open source software? I hope we can. And now we have a year to do that. But I guess my call would be if you're looking for a friend in the community or you're looking for a place to get plugged into that that has a that has similar interests and and a, and a place that will put their arm around you and say here is how you can do the things that you're looking to do if you need connections here are the connections that we as a community have made and you're and it's it's it is not a zero-sum game everybody can win and come in and and participate in that event there is a whole bunch of experiences that we just can't replicate remotely everything from geeks with guns um, to the to the beer tasting party that occurs. I mean, all of those things are just they're they're very very community oriented, community centered. The conference is very community centered, and I think it's going to be bigger than ever in 2021. Uh, Jeremy, I guess I'll, I'll get your thoughts. Is uh, what what do people have to look forward to in 2021? Well, uh, I would say uh, for starters, those who are far far away. Um, you know, we, we've kind of spitballed this, but assuming it, it is amenable to you, I don't see any reason why we couldn't really make it more interactive for the remote attendees since that didn't seem to really have too much effect on workflow. We, we 
we had lots and lots of people able to ask questions to speakers remotely and it wasn't big, too uh too much of a hassle um you know the devil's in the details we'd have to sit down and, and hash out the fine details of how do we pass that off to the room moderators etc but i think there's definitely room for further integration and and improving the experience with the uh, remote attendee uh, i think we we saw that for sure this year in terms of irl uh well for so uh this will be our second year in the entire hotel there at the sheraton charlotte airport uh the first year was a lot of behind the scenes stuff like running fiber optics uh to the uh new parts of the building that we haven't been in before so now that we have our our networking stuff kind of deployed in the ceiling almost literally <laughs> waiting for us to return um i'm not too concerned as I was the first time about keeping it modest and stuff we do in all that extra space. So I have a whole bunch of extra space to be determined on what we're going to do with that. But I want to definitely engage with some of the local tech communities in the greater Charlotte area, you know, the Python type groups and Golang type groups, all that people who kind of naturally have a thick Venn diagram intersection with uh, Linux desktop. And you have you build these relationships all year round. I mean, you and I have off air conversations about even people that live around you that you have have begun to network with and said, "Hey, you know, the company I work for or a project I'm working on at work is doing really cool things." And um, and so you're, I assume anyway that 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 a large portion of what you do the rest of the year is is invite these people to participate in this community event. Oh, it, it's all over the map. Uh, I I'd like to go to uh, to local clubs and meetups and kind of do a a one on one, introduce them to self, uh, kind of get some of their feedback, kind of encourage them to submit talks, um, so that we have a, a greater breadth and more more categories with which to draw talks from. Um, and some of that, though I've been more slack than I would like to be, is uh, just networking within Uclug. And because, uh, uh, you know, local lugs always have a, a need for uh, speakers. I haven't really, you know, I have kind of a back burner, fire, uh, a back burner fire burning on that as to how to put my connections with speakers across the greater region to work to fill content vacancies at local lugs because I think I'm kind of somewhat uniquely placed to put that supply in touch with that demand. Yeah, very much so. Well, JT, uh, JT, Jeremy Sands, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program and discuss. Uh, I guess we'll we'll probably sync up again before Self 2021. It's going to be a great event. And by the way, you can make your reservations now. I understand the hotel is taking reservations. We have the dates. Everything is locked in. It's all available at SoutheastLinuxFest.org. Is that right? That's exactly right. June 11th through 13th, SoutheastLinuxFest.org. You can grab your room now. And when I put the room block up this early, you'd be surprised how gone it is by year end usually. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to be here. We'll get you back in the program soon. Thanks much. Thanks. one 855 it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at show.com. That is the way to make your voice heard, become a part of the program. George joins us from New York. Hey, George, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, hey, greetings from New York City. We are now at phase two of COVID crisis. Yeah, how does that, how does that work exactly? Are you guys finally, are, are you able to leave your house? Can you go out and eat in a restaurant yet? 
Um, you can eat outside of the restaurant. Um, me, I've been leaving the house because I, 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 I'm part of the essential workers crew. So like nothing really changed for me <laughs> when COVID hit. Yeah. It was weird being self-employed we outside now. It's weird being self-employed during that because you know, the state has their own mandates on how you, um, classify essential employees. And here I am writing a letter for myself to tell the state that I believe I'm essential. I'm an essential employee to my own business and we provide essential services to other businesses. Therefore I should be able to go where I want to go, I guess is how that works out. Anyway, welcome to the program. How can I help tonight? All right. I've got a question. Um, like everyone else, actually like thousands of other people out there uh, who became uh, members of their church's media arts team uh, I've got the job of being in charge of mine, and um, one of the deacons actually kind of has a low-tech way of reaching out to certain people who may not have access to, like, a computer or a tablet or a smart device or whatever. So a lot of the live streams from, like, the service and uh, Bible study, etc., they're just kind of holding a phone to the computer speakers, and then that's, like, connected to one of those, like, dial-in conference numbers, so... For those who don't have a computer, they dial into this conference number and um, listen up. Uh, I was just, when I heard that that's what he was doing, I'm just like, okay, the nerd in me is like, there has to be a better way to do that than just hold the phone to the computer speaker and, you know, pray for the best. Um, and so I'm asking you, is there a more elegant way of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll start with the best solution. We'll work our way backwards. Sound fair? So what we're doing here in the studio and what most broadcast facilities do is they have what's known as a phone hybrid. And that's a physical piece of hardware that connects the phone line to an audio mixer. And the thing that the phone hybrid does that is that is special and, and why it is su- and why it's uh, superior to just, you know, maybe connecting a, a headphone jack and a microphone jack into the mixer is because. Phone is what's known as simplex communication. Simplex communication being I can only talk or receive at one time. I cannot do both. And over the years, phones have gotten so good at simplex communication that you don't really notice when you stop talking and I start talking that your phone is muting you and letting you listen to me. And then if if you start talking, it mutes me and then, then you're able to talk. And the phones uh, have gotten so good at doing this, and it makes the switch so quickly that you can interrupt somebody on a phone call and you don't really notice. Oftentimes, where you will start to notice it come up a little bit is when it's on a speakerphone, because obviously in a speakerphone, it has to be more aggressive of cutting one person off and letting the other person uh, speak. Otherwise, the phone speaker would feed back into the phone's microphone. You'd have a loop and that would not be good. Um, and so a phone hybrid addresses this uh, in, 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 in a very specific way that the phone hybrid connects to the remote caller and then gives you a feed uh, from that caller's audio plus a, the ability to send a feed to that caller's audio and it keeps both of those audio chains separate and it has an internal device that opens up and closes down every time the the call participants change. So when you talk, it mutes you. And when I talk, it mutes me or other way around. But you get the idea. That's what a phone hybrid does. And it's the best solution for what you're talking about. The problem is phone hybrids can be a little expensive. So the one that we're using here, which is generously donated by Vox Telesis, is the Telos HX6. 
and uh, this is a this is a, a professional broadcast um, audio interface that is designed to connect uh, to phone systems. Now you can pick up a, a Telos HX system. I think they start at like five hundred dollars. There is a less expensive version though that you can use, made by a company called JK Audio, and JK Audio makes something called the Audio Hybrid, and the Audio Auto Hybrid is is exactly what I described. It is a telephone audio interface, but instead of being a rack-mounted unit and the ability to tie into SIP phones and all those kinds of things, essentially what this device does is you plug one XLR cable into the send, and that is what is sent to the caller, and the caller then, their audio comes through another XLR port, and that would go to your mixer. And so what you would do then on your mixer is you would create a mix minus. So if you have a, what what do you have for a soundboard? If anything, I guess I should ask. Uh, we, uh, well, I don't know what the other guy has, but I know in the church we have the um, the X32. I think oh, Behringer perfect. makes it. Yeah, perfect. So on the X32, you can create as uh, effectively as many submixes i think that's got like 16 outputs on the back of it so you're you're no you're no no shortage of of, of submixes but what you'll do is you'll create a submix and the submix will contain all of the mix channels all of the program output all of your main bus except the channel in which that caller is coming in on so if you plug the caller into channel 12 it will be a collection of 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 13 14 15 16 all the way up to 32 or however many channels you're running it simultaneously You'll subtract channel 12 out of that mix, and that's what you will feed back to the caller with that JK Audio Telephone Hybrid. So I'll have a link for you in the show notes with the JK Audio Hybrid. Here's another way that you can accomplish this, though. If you wanted to do it on the uber cheap route, the other way that you can do this is you can repurpose a PC for this, right? And the way that you would do that is this. You would go over to Voxtelesis, voxtelesis.com slash asknoah. They'll give you a free $25 credit so that you can get signed up for a free account. Now, if you use their metered service, uh, what it will allow you to do is pay just a uh, a dollar fifty a month plus a penny per minute for every for every minute that the, the phone call is there. It's not going to cost you very much money. By the way, they're going to give you that twenty five dollar credit to begin with, so you can burn through that to see how it works for you. And then what you can do is you can set up a computer with a regular USB audio interface, and you can use a piece of software like Linphone. Um, that's connected to the Vox Telesis trunk so that your callers can call in and they are connected and, and, and are presented to the mixer as a PC audio source. They just come out of your USB audio interface into the mixer and whatever the mixer is feeding back into the computer will be sent back to the caller. And so this is a way that you could, it, you're essentially building your own phone hybrid out of a spare computer, which is obviously much less expensive to do. Of course, the downside is if you have landline phones that are already in the church with a phone hybrid, you can simply just plug them in. Uh, with this method, you're going to be purchasing a new phone line. You're going to be paying a monthly fee for that. It's not very expensive. Again, buck, buck something per month plus a penny per minute. So Voxtels is very inexpensive that way. Um, but that's another way that you can accomplish it. If you wanted an in-between solution to those two, you could use something like IPDTL. IPDTL is a service that uh, is it's really built for... Um, for radio stations being able to connect remote talent from all over the place. Um, but what they allow you to do is you sign up for an account there, and I think they run 15 bucks a month, um, but you, they provide the phone line and they provide a web interface. So the computer that I was speaking of, instead of having to configure LinPhone and, 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 and set all of that up, um, you just simply sign in to your IP DTL account 
and people will call into your IP DTL number and that will present the audio to the mixer through the USB audio interface and the mixer will then present the house audio back to the caller over that USB audio interface. And so all you have to do is pay that $15 a month. I would imagine one of those solutions should work for you. Yeah, like the one with the the most, well, the techie one where you get the laptop because uh, that seems more portable than the mm-hmm. other options just in case they don't have access to the church like, like, yeah. like now or who knows. Yeah, the other thing you could do, yeah, I I appreciate the call. The other thing you could do, George, if you're interested in doing it, is uh, if you go the laptop route, it also opens you up to a couple other options, right? Because everything, every audio source or every remote connectivity that would come into a laptop becomes an available way for people to be conferenced in uh, to the church message, right? So, for example, if you have Mumble running, you could spin up a Murmur server, which is literally a a 10-minute deal to do. And people could install the Mumble client, and then they could connect to your um, to your Murmur server, and they would be delivered the audio from the church. You could do the same thing with Matrix. That's what we're doing, right? You could go to matrix.org. Actually, you could register a room on, on Linux Delta. You could go to riot.linuxdelta.com. You could create a room for your church. We have the Jitsi plugin right there. And so you could simply have a, a laptop existing inside of that Jitsi room, and then other places could uh, could jump into that Jitsi room, and they would be able to hear that audio as well. XMN says basically the same thing. You could use Jitsi, uh, meet.jit.si, and um, that is a publicly hosted Jitsi interface, and you could do exactly what I'm telling you. The only reason I would tell you to uh, to shy away from the meet.jit.si is because because it's a public server running, and a lot of people use it. It does tend to get overwhelmed from time to time. That's nothing. That's not a knock on Jitsi. The software itself is great. Um, it's just the free service that they're providing, obviously, is not going to scale um, the way that a the, the way that a solution you build yourself would. Um, because everybody's using it, not just you. Um, but yeah, I, I, w- I, you know, you could certainly go that route and see if it works. You could also use the way that we were connected for uh, the interview with Jeremy and JT. We were using a service called Source Connect, which we use for a number of the guests that we interview. Um, that's a free service if you go to Source, uh, Source Connect now. Um, again, primarily designed for remote radio talent to be able to do their shows remotely over a web browser, um, but works very, very well for doing interviews and certainly would work well for your purpose. So thanks for, in any, in any event, thanks for the call. 855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Of course, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Hey, I want to tell you guys, about an app I came across this week. It's called Disconaut. And how many times have you been sitting at your computer and you've said to yourself, I need to know how much disk space is on this particular partition. And you find that the graphical interfaces for, uh, for looking at disk space are more presentable and, and a little bit more approachable than some of the CLI ones. Well, Disconaut is, might change your opinion on that. Um, you give it a path on your hard drive, and so it could be the root path, and Disconaut will scan and map to memory so that you can explore the contents even while the drive is still scanning. So if you're searching for that file, or you're trying to find where you move something, uh, so on and so forth, Disconaut can help you with that. Once completed, you can navigate through subfolders and you can get a visual tree map representation of what's taking up your disk space. You can even delete files or folders, and Disconaut will track how much space you've freed up in that particular session. And so I invite you to check it out, github.com slash I-M-S-N-I-F slash Disconnot. Of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's a pretty cool utility and one that I'm trying to use more and more on the command line. What I'm finding is when you work on servers, 
the utilities that you standardize standardize around almost have to run in CLI. And if it's NCurses, so be it. But it basically has to run inside of a terminal because without the ability to do that, the the, the tool set is only functional when uh, when I'm sitting in front of Linux desktops. And that kind of rules out a lot of the servers. So I'm, I, I like being aware of these tools and I like sharing sharing them with you. Another one I'll throw a mention for, KeePass XC. It's a fork of, of KeePass X. Um, now, KeePass, the original uh, software, was written in C Sharp, and that requires MS.NET or Mono, uh, Mono Runtime, in order to make that work. And so there's a fork of KeePass X. This is now a, a fork of KeePass X. It's KeePass XC. This is written entirely in C++. And the thing that I like about it in specific is the uh, is well first of all it's a more up to date code base there are more people banging on it more people working on it it has more active development um, they're also very involved in the community asking for patreon support to help fund the project to keep things moving get people paychecks those kinds of things I like that the other thing I really like about KeePass XC uh, is the fact that it has a passphrase generator. I believe in 2020 that in this day and age, there is no way to memorize a truly secure password. Uh, and, the, the, and, the, and so the way that we get around that is we maintain everything, we store everything inside of a password manager. There's a couple of different ones out there you can use. If you're interested in uh, in syncing passwords around and you want the ability to log into it from anywhere, then of course we recommend Bitwarden. But if you're looking to store passwords either offline or if you're willing to use a third-party syncing solution, which gives you a little bit more granular control over where that data is stored, uh, KeePassXC is a great way to go. And so I have been using KeePassXC, I, don't, I would say for about the last two, three years, and I tend to store the passwords that, are, uh, that I, I would never want anybody to get access to, and certainly I only need access to them from uh, a, a certain collection of machines. And so, you know, the, the 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 passwords to various websites and stuff like that, those will all go in Bitwarden because they can just sync around and, and that way I don't have to, to worry about them. And if the account does become compromised, I just log in there. I use the password generator to generate a new password and I don't really pay attention to it. Um, KeePassXE is, is much more organized. I create folder structures in there and, and store uh, passwords for service, SSH keys, those kinds of things. Uh, KeePassXE is very good at. The other thing is because it's such a popular password program, it comes pre-installed uh, in the live version of Tails. And so if you have a KeePassXE database, you're able to access those pa passwords and review them um, from, uh, from, uh, from Tails. And which, that's kind of nice because it's an amnesic operating system, so it pays no attention to what you've done. There, it's cross-platform, so it'll run on Windows, Mac, and Linux. The database is encrypted with AES-256. Of course, the source code is end-to-end open source, and uh, they also support key files and YubiKey for enhanced security. Check out KeePassXC, and uh, if you want to play with the middle in between something like Bitwarden that runs inside of your web browser and syncs to a service and KeePassXC, you might check out KeePassXC Browser, which is the browser extension that allows you to access your KeePassXC right from Chrome or Firefox. Another thing I want to talk to you about is a, a, a a gadget that uh, that I came across, and uh, I, I I look around my office. I have so many of these gadgets and things that I use on a day-to-day -day basis. 
but we never talk about them. And so I was talking to my producer the other night. He said, hey, just throw that in the show. That would that'd be cool to hear about. So I, I picked up a new headset. It's the Plantronics Voyager. It's a wireless Bluetooth headset. Now, this thing works flawlessly out of the box with Linux. You can pair it right to your Linux box. It has, it has a smart sensor that allows uh, the headset to know when it's being worn so it can automatically answer calls uh, when it's placed on your ear or and redirect the audio from your phone when you uh, when you set the headset back down. It has the ability to manage calls hands-free without pressing any buttons. Plantronics has voice recognition built right into the headset, so you can just tell it, answer, or ignore. And uh, the ability to manage calls, uh, or excuse me, the ability to manage calls in a noise-reduced environment, they have a triple mic that cancels out background noise and wind uh, and wind noise and separates your voice from it up to 80 dB of background noise reduction. So it's a pretty cool headset. And the thing I liked about it, again, I pull it out of the box. It works natively right on Linux. So if you're looking for a, a Bluetooth communications headset, I mean, you're not going to listen to, you know, high fidelity stereo, anything like that on here. But if you're looking for a good, solid business communication headset, Plantronics is a great way to go. Uh, by the way, XMN in the chat room says he wanted to share this calling software he found recently. Not sure if it fits, but it's open source. The calling software is called Decentralized Video Chat. It's on GitHub. I will have a link in the in the show notes at podcast.asknoshow.com. So if you, uh, George, if you want to check that out, might be another option for you as well. Now, we just talked about the KeePass XC browser extension, and that is a safe and useful browser extension to have as is Bitwarden, but you want to be careful with what extensions uh, you install. It turns out 33 million times uh, people downloaded from the Google Chrome web store uh, add-ons and browser extensions that presented a severe security risk. And so highly sensitive user information uh, was sucked up by a, a number of these different apps. And a security firm uh, reported on Thursday that this underscores the lack me the, the lax measures that continue to be put uh, into Internet extensions and add-ons. Um, these companies were siphoning data, uh, such as screenshots, the content of the device clipboard, browser cookies used to log into websites, keystrokes, passwords, researchers from the, the security research firm Awake said. And I, I want to double down on that because I, I, I literally was just working with a client a few months ago on a, on a security breach. And the way that the breach happened was the attacker copied the Mozilla folder out of the user's uh, computer, off their local computer. And inside of that Mozilla folder, of course, contained the Mozilla profile folder, and in that were the cookies. So when the user logged into a number of different sites and clicked save password, remember me, um, it created a cookie that said this person is logged in. And so when you took that Mozilla folder and simply dropped it onto a new machine uh, and replaced the existing Firefox folder on a new machine, then that attacker had access to all of the client's uh, sites that they were logged into, and it turned out to be a real problem. It took us a little bit to track down exactly how this happened. Um, but so the ability for an extension to do that remotely, to steal those cookies and uh, and steal the ability to be logged into sites is a big deal. Um, some of the extensions, because there were, uh, I think there were like 180 of them that Google ended up pulled pulling from their, uh, from their app store, but some of them were PDF opener, My Doctor PDF, Easy Convert, Byte Fence Secure Browser and the Secure Search Extension. So all of those were found to have malicious codes. There's also the, the security firm Awake also released a list of domains that these extensions were calling back 
uh, to home. And so they were they were calling back in and, 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 and transmitting this data. We have the list of all of those domains up uh, at podcast.asknoshow.com. So you'll want to check that list. And one of the things that we do when we're checking this out for clients is we'll simply just log into the router and look at what's being resolved in DNS and look at that DNS log and say, oh, well, look at that. These sites are being resolved and that's those are bad domains. We don't want things talking to these places. What machines are doing this and how do we clean those up? So if you're not if you if you're a person that downloads a lot of extensions, I'm not one. But if you're a person that downloads a lot of extensions, you'll want to stay on top of this and you'll want to head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out those domains see if you were affected zoom is going to go to end-to-end encryption by default bowing to critics critics zoom will offer end-to-end encryption for non-paying customers that register an account Uh, essentially there was a, a lot of pressure from privacy and human rights activists saying that Zoom was making people pay for privacy. And Zoom came out on Wednesday and said that they're going to make end-to-end encryption available to both paying and non-paying users of its video conferencing service. Previously, Zoom was only providing end-to-end encryption for customers that paid for their service, and they had Uh, They had encryption in transit, but it wasn't true end-to-end encryption. That is to say, the communication as it was being sent was probably being sent over something like SSL. And so if you tried to snoop on a switch, you wouldn't be able to see the communication. But it wasn't, the, the key was not being generated on one user's device and another user's device, and then those were the only two people that could talk in the middle. It was probably encrypted with a key that that Zoom had access to. And their argument for this was kind of unique, I thought. They essentially, they responded by saying that they were concerned about law enforcement efforts to track illegal activity. And their justification for it went something along the lines of, if people pay for an account, then we have that person's real name, we have that person's credit card number, we have that person's billing address, and we probably have that person's contact phone number. And so if somebody did something illegal after they have paid for Zoom, we can go back and find that person if you ever need to track them down. The problem with letting people use end-to-end encryption when they don't have a paid account is we don't have any of those personal details. And for all we know, they just made up the contact information. Now, how do we go and what do we tell law enforcement when they say we need to find who it was that did this? And that seemed like a pretty weak argument to myself and other critics and human rights advocates. So they came down pretty hard on Zoom and said that you can't make it a premium feature. Privacy shouldn't be a premium feature. It should be something that's available by default. And so the, uh, the, the, the registration process is now similar to that by other end-to-end messaging surface like Signal and WhatsApp. Each user has to ha- prove that they have a valid phone number and um, then you're able to register for an account and you'll be able to use uh, end-to-end encrypted. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that Zoom has decided to respond in this way. I think what it tells us is Zoom is serious about privacy and security. I think that they were caught a little off guard, to be honest with you. I think when people first started signing up for Zoom, I think they went from tens of thousands of users to millions of users in like three and a half weeks. And I think that caught them a little off guard. And so all of a sudden they have to spin up new infrastructure so that they can accommodate all of these people. I think they've done a really great job having hosted an entire conference on Zoom. What I can tell you is that we didn't have things dropping out. We didn't have people unable to connect. Um, it's been a very reliable service, and it seems like they're taking privacy seriously. It doesn't hurt the fact that they also have a Linux client out. So I, you know, they're not open source. Um, they are a, 
a company and they are going to do what's in the best interest of their profit, but it does seem like they are responsive to user feedback. And I think that's important to acknowledge and be thankful for. So if you were previously concerned about the security of using Zoom, don't be because they are going to switch over to end-to-end end encryption for everyone. I also think that this plays a role in telemedicine because previously I believe that the end-to-end -end encryption features were only available in certain paid accounts, and that was one of the selling features uh, for hospitals if they wanted to use Zoom for uh, telemedicine and not requiring patients to physically come into an office, do an evaluation over the internet. Um, you would, of course, uh, due to HIPAA regulations, want that to be an end-to-end -end encrypted session. Now you'll be able to do that. Of course, the other way around that, and my my instant rebuke uh, to, to, to this idea that only people that are going to do something bad with it would sign up for the free account and it'd be harder to track them or trace them. Guess what? Matrix has end-to-end -end encryption and it requires nothing to be set up. I can simply just log on to matrix.org or log on to riot.linuxdelta.com or I can spin up my own server and I can have end-to-end -end encryption. So if I was a bad person looking to do bad things, there's plenty of technical ways for me to accomplish that anyway. I don't need Zoom's help for that, but I'm glad to see that I'm glad to see that they're taking the concern seriously and reacting to it. Back in 2017, uh, WikiLeaks began publishing details of a top-secret CIA hacking tool, um, a collection of tools, rather, that researchers soon confirmed uh, were a were were a, the 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 tools that were used to steal a bunch of confidential documents um, in isolated high-security networks. And this leak uh, comprised more than 34 terabytes of information representing the CIA's largest data loss in history um, because of their security practices. Now, the task force that was in charge of investigating said that the design lapse of the mission system was just one of multiple ongoing CIA failures that led to the leak. They had a, a number of additional problems that they later identified, not empowering any single officer with the ability to ensure the agency information systems are built secure and remain so throughout their life cycle, not ensuring that their ability to secure information system against emerging threats kept in place with the growth of such systems across the agency, and a failure to recognize and act in a coordinated fashion on warning signs that a person or persons with access to CIA-classified information posed an unacceptable risk to national security. So all of that boils down to basically say that the CIA didn't do a very good job of securing their own network, and then they got hacked. Um, interestingly enough, some of the technical details that came out of this, they were not using multi-factor authentication. And so in 2017, the CISA issued a directive for federal agencies to require them to protect websites and email using encryption. And so now in a memo that was sent, they ask, why was that not done? And what is a future, uh, what is a future ETA that we can expect this to be done? And what I took away from this article, it doesn't surprise me that, that the, you know, the NSA and the CIA obviously developed tools to circumvent technology so that they, they can get into stuff. I mean, that, in a post-known world, I think we kind of expect that. Um, what was kind of surprising to me, though, is, one, that the absolute lack of their own security, but the other problem was how much of people's personal information is compromised because of these kinds of failures. When we talk about end-to-end -end encryption and why it matters, when we talk about privacy, and why it matters. This is why it matters. When the CIA or when the NSA develops these tools because they're a state-funded entity and have the ability to develop these tools that can bypass iPhone encryption, that can 
work work around or find backdoors into browsers and and so on and so forth when they develop those kinds of technologies most of us are are begrudgingly okay with it or at least we choose to look the other way because it's a state-sponsored thing and we go well the, we really what can we do about the government doing that number one number two at least they're doing it to 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 hunt bad guys or at least that's the excuse that we tell ourselves the problem is when this stuff gets leaked and 34 terabytes worth of data go on to the open internet now all of a sudden we have a new problem because now individuals and individual companies are become victim to these uh, to these security failures and they didn't have a choice whether or not to participate they didn't know to expect the threat because they didn't know this was a possibility and so you know as we continue to move forward and as we start looking at why matrix matters and why we use riot and why we care about zoom having end-to-end -end encryption this is why when the government or any government or any any attacker really doesn't really matter who's sponsoring them when they come up with an attack to attack conference software, for example, and they say, okay, now we can spy on the Zoom conference and you have a confidential meeting with your patient or your law client or whatever, and that information or that recorded conference becomes released onto the open internet, it's a big problem to you and you don't have any recourse. And so I think the, the exciting part to me is we are watching these failures continue and we are watching the federal government and other state-sponsored entities continue to try to develop their tools to circumvent security but at the same time we are watching uh we are watching end-to-end -end encryption and these kinds of tools take off and succeed in in a way that we know they're working because the because nobody is complaining about people using them and them not having access to the information if you look at the any of the reports that the fbi has published about people quote unquote going dark if you actually dig into them a little bit further, what you'll find is the vast majority of places that the FBI investigates, the vast majority of cases, the vast majority of technology that the FBI comes across, encryption is not stopping them and hasn't been for a long time. And so they are more focused on using things like Etsy to, to track down people based on their username and photographs of that person. That's a real thing that happened. Uh, they're more interested in using those kinds of tactics than they are trying to defeat encryption because at the end of the day, the encryption is a mathematical problem. It's really not one that's easy to break. And that's why we like it. And that's why we extol it for the purpose of privacy. So have that in the back of your mind. The next time you're asking yourself, do I really want to go through the hassle of setting up those end-to-end -end encryption keys or is it good if it's just, is it good enough if it's just on the open internet? Dennis K. writes in, hey Noah, I have a question about job security. I work as a web developer, but my main role is managing and building WordPress sites for our clients. I am a Linux enthusiast, and although my job is currently secure, I wanted to get your thoughts on something. What would you say are the top three areas of Linux or tech that you would recommend your audience uh, that you feel will continue to thrive despite current events? Coronavirus, riots, economic crisis, etc. I have been blessed with a great job and I have no desire to leave. But if I leave my current position, if I find my current position in jeopardy, I want a parachute. I've been using Linux for several years, but I'm far from an expert. I do enjoy learning and I'm passionate about Linux. I appreciate all you do for your audience. Thanks. Well, I would tell you that uh, containers and DevOps are probably the two things that I see the most places trying to hire and their inability to fill. I can, I can off the top of my head, I could point you in the direction of three different companies that are actively looking to hire people either from from a DevOps standpoint or because they're looking for people to manage or uh, or or work on container infrastructure that I think and I think most people that have that that keep their finger on the pulse of these things would tell you 
um, that's where the future of 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 just computers in general are going. It's go, Microsoft is going to software as a service. Obviously, that's going to be heavily dependent on Linux. Azure is heavily dependent on Linux. Many of those technologies will be dependent on containers. Um, so if you're sitting in the if you're sitting in the container space, you're in a good place. And then the other thing is, everybody uh, we can find software developers to develop stuff. What we have a hard time doing is providing the infrastructure around the developers and the ever-changing infrastructure that the developers need to be able to do their job. That's where DevOps comes in. So one of those two places I would uh, I would check out. Uh, another email. Hi, Noah. Following up on the caller from last week's show, the June 10th, who was having issues with his Lenovo T570 on the display locking up on Kubuntu 18.04. I've had similar issues with KDE Neon, which uses 18.04 as its base on a T470. The issue for me was related to a bug in the kernel with the GPU. I would see repeated lines of my syslog like this. Kernel I915 resetting RCS0. Poor hang on RCS0. Unfortunately, I don't recall which kernel version I had issues with. I believe it may have been 5.3.0-53. When I found I downgraded to 5.3.0.46, the problem went away. I have since had to upgrade to kernel 5.3.0-59. I'm using Ubuntu hardware enablement, and I don't have any lockups. I hope this helps your caller. Thanks. And I appreciate you uh, for writing in. Um, this is one of the reasons why I always tell people, when in doubt, go back to uh, to to Ubuntu proper and see see where you start and, and and try to get rid of as many variables as possible and then troubleshoot from there. Um, another emailer writes in and says, Hi, Noah, I really appreciate the show and everything you do for the community. I was recently on a road trip and heard you mention a Pi project that combined multiple RTSP streams using a Pi. And that's something I'd really like to get going. The problem I was driving and listened to several shows on that trip, and I could not find the reference when searching through the show notes when I got to my destination. Can you offer any help as to more on the project? Thanks, Paul. So the project that you're undoubtedly referring to is a project called Display Cameras. And what Display Cameras is, um, back in the days of analog security cameras, what we would do is we would connect each one of those security cameras to a DVR, a digital video recorder. And before that, it was obviously recording on tape. But... Um, when the when when networks started to become big and everything was going to go over the internet, uh, we started by putting network cards in the DVR so you could access the DVR over the network. Eventually, cameras went the way of IP, and now any modern camera that you buy, any camera that you should buy, um, is likely using the RTSP protocol, which is the real time uh, real time streaming protocol. Now, this is the same protocol that drones use when they're sending feeds back uh, into into a central office. It's the same thing that. Um, uh, basically every security camera uses the in the old DVRs though there was what was known as a multiplexer and a multiplexer would take if you had 16 cameras would take all 16 cameras and it would divide them into a grid and display each camera in a little box and you've probably seen these in Hollywood movies so on and so forth right what display cameras is a it's a open source project that allows you to turn a repurposed Raspberry Pi into a multiplexer for RTSP streams so this is very useful uh, in a, let's say you have a hotel and they have, uh, let's say they have 64 cameras inside of the hotel that cover a number of hallways and rooms and entrance and exits. How does the front desk clerk keep track of those? Well, we could tell the front desk clerk, well, you just go on here and log on to your Synology NVR, which is the 
the network replacement of a DVR, log into the NVR and you can see them right there. All the cameras pull up the camera feeds you need. We could tell them you have to pull each RTSP feed into a player like VLC and you can watch them that way. But the most efficient way to do that is to use this, uh, this display camera's open source software and what it will do is create a matrix, a grid, and layer those cameras, those RTSP feeds out and you can see them all at once. The other thing that I have found that that's particularly useful for is in the Unify software, in the Unify NVR, which is one of the reasons we don't install them anymore, if you open the live playback, it will only uh, it will only show real time for maybe an hour or so. After that, it begins to drift, and pretty soon what you're looking at happened minutes ago, and it's no longer useful for real-time monitoring. And again, that's one of the reasons we have switched to the Synology NVR. So display cameras, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Again, you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Hey, the music means we're out of time. A huge thanks to JT, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, Vox Telesis for providing our phone system. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty of more content for you at asknoahshow.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow. That's the way to stay up to date. You'll find out about events, where we're going to be, what we're going to do when we do special episodes of the show. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday. Tuesday.